Hello and welcome to the first episode of the third year of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And we're starting off this third year with a very unusual episode, or at least one that is unusual to me. And that is that Xbox Series S owners, so there's no real reason to believe that this won't apply to Xbox Series X owners as well, are currently playing, among other things, PlayStation 2 video games on their console through the use of emulation. This was brought to my attention in an article on VGC entitled, Xbox Series S owners are playing PS2 games via emulation, including God of War, Metal Gear Solid 2, and Gran Turismo 4. Xbox Series X S owners have been able to get PlayStation 2 games running on Microsoft's new consoles using developer mode. The mode, which can be accessed for a $20 fee, lets users install development builds of software that utilize Universal Windows Platform, UWP. And we're going to talk more about developer mode and why this particular use of it is likely to be a problem under Microsoft's own terms for that mode, but it's still a very interesting story. This includes emulators, things running on the developer mode, such as RetroArch, as shown via YouTube channel Modern Vintage Gamer, enabling users to play Dreamcast, GameCube, Wii, PlayStation 3, and PlayStation 2 games on Microsoft's console. PlayStation 2 games currently run using preview builds of RetroArch that have the PlayStation 2 emulator PCSX2 implemented. So as I understand it, RetroArch is a kind of umbrella program that can run all of these various other emulators that are being developed across the world, and they are currently preview running this emulator for PlayStation 2 games called PCSX2, and that's what we see in videos like the one presented by Modern Vintage Gamer. And I do want to link, of course, this video in the description to this one. It's a very interesting video. This is really where I believe VGC got the baseline information that it received. It shows how emulation looks. It also has a number of complaints about how difficult it is to get running, including saying that they were actually thinking about delaying this video and their commentary on it until there was a further version of RetroArch or the emulator for PlayStation 2. But ultimately, they come away saying, hey, these things run on the Xbox Series S. They do talk about the fact that things like GameCube games currently run on the Xbox Series S. And the one thing I want to uh, leave you with at the start of talking about all this is that Sony is unlikely to be thrilled about this state of affairs. We already know that Nintendo doesn't love emulators just being out there. They certainly don't love advertising them, but we haven't necessarily seen any action from Nintendo on this front. Now, I'm not sure exactly how aware they are of what Microsoft's developer mode is doing with RetroArch or other emulation sources. They might not be aware of it. I certainly wasn't prior to today, but again, I'm not Nintendo general counsel, so it might be that they are evaluating their options with respect to GameCube titles. But one thing that we can expect from Sony is that they aren't going to be thrilled with this. After all, backwards compatibility is one of the fights that Sony and Xbox have been having in this generation and really the prior generation, that Xbox is moving towards supporting the entire line of Xbox games, generally supporting the history of video games, when Sony and PlayStation, for all of the great things that are part of the PlayStation 5 and the PlayStation brand, really hasn't been looking at backwards compatibility to the same extent that Microsoft has. So Microsoft coming and saying, hey, we can play PlayStation 2 games when the PlayStation 5 can't even do that is very unlikely to be seen in a positive light on the Sony campuses. 
right? And so what we've got right now is we've got Microsoft that isn't officially doing this, of course, with the capability of playing PlayStation 2 games when the PlayStation 5 cannot, and a Sony that might stay quiet on this, but might also say, Microsoft, you got to do something about this. You got to cut this off, or we're going to have to consider bringing an infringement complaint against you, bringing another complaint against you. And whether or not that would win in the end is still a legally open gray area question. But in general, as we talked about in the video that we made last week about Nintendo and emulation and ROMs and Slippy and Smash Brothers, that isn't necessarily a question that the publishers or the hardware manufacturers would necessarily want answered, right? What we know right now is gray area. Again, I highly recommend checking out this video that I did earlier on the Nintendo versus Smash Brothers concept for more detail on this, is that in the United States, emulation itself is probably okay. You build a piece of software code, you build even your own hardware box to arrive at a similar output playing software that is put into it, then in general, the United States is going to say, that's okay. You're allowed to build things backwards and have an output be the same. We saw this in respect of quote-unquote unauthorized Sega Genesis games. We saw this with respect to the Game Genie. We saw this with Bleem, which is an old emulator that was a piece of software you put on your computer to play PlayStation, I believe it was PlayStation 1 games at the time. And the United States courts basically said, yep, that's okay. But what we don't know is okay, and what is clearly in a bigger gray area than just the actual act of creating the emulator is dumping copies of the video game into ROMs or anything else that you might be able to think of that could operate these things, using them apart from the mode in which you purchase them and putting them in to the emulator. That has always been a gray area and it's not something that the publishers are too eager to answer because in essence, they could lose that case. I think it's more likely than not that they wouldn't, but you never know when you take these things to the end state of a court case. And so when you've got these two titans, you've got Microsoft and Sony, it's one of those areas where just maybe this could be the kind of thing where if Sony says, hey, Microsoft, blacklist this, take this down, enforce your own rules, which we will see as part of this video, against people using this emulator, if Microsoft says no, then things really escalate. But I doubt that Microsoft would say no because it's not in Microsoft's best interest to crack open all video games everywhere either. The PlayStation 5 is certainly capable of running emulators of things like Xbox games, and you wouldn't want to see it escalate in that fashion if you were Microsoft or Sony. The other thing I wanted to raise before we kind of talk about the details here are the responses that a couple of people gave to me to this notion that emulators probably okay in most instances. You can get it wrong. You can copy things directly from the software that'll get you in trouble with the court system, but probably okay if you do the right things, you jump through the right hoops. And ROMs, not so much. People said, hey, aren't there ways, aren't there legal rights to create things like backups? And of course there are, and we've talked about this in respect of software in virtual legality before. This is section 117 of the Copyright Act. This is from the Copyright Office. They say under Section 117, you or someone you authorize may make a copy of an original computer program if the new copy is being made for archival, i.e. backup purposes only. You are the legal owner of the copy and any copy made for archival purposes is either destroyed or transferred with the original copy once the original copy is sold, given away, or otherwise transferred. Now, the law actually says something a little bit different. It's a weird bit of drafting in the Copyright Act. It says the following, 
It says, notwithstanding the provisions of Section 106, which if you've been in virtual legality before, you recognize as the exclusive rights of a copyright holder to make derivative works, to reproduce, to publicly display, to do all those various things. It is not an infringement for the owner of a copy of a computer program to make or authorize the making of another copy or adaptation of that computer program provided that such new copy or adaptation is for archival purposes only. We saw that. And that all archival copies are destroyed in the event that what? Continued possession of the computer program should cease to be rightful. Now, rightful isn't a word you see in a lot of legal drafting. What does this even mean? If you haven't looked at a bunch of case law, maybe even copyright office publications, you have no notion if you're just an ordinary reader of the law of what this could possibly mean. What does it mean when possession of the computer program should cease to be rightful? Most importantly, does it cease to be rightful if you lose your copy, if it's destroyed in a house fire? And if it is, if that means that you have ceased to have rightful possession of the computer program because it's supposed to attach to the original copy, what in the world is the purpose of this section and this right? I can have a backup copy, but I can never use it if I ever lose access to the original. What was it for? Ordinarily, we think of backup copies as protecting us against things like a house fire. But if that doesn't actually do that, how does this law even operate? And it gets worse from there, right? The Copyright Office actually says what I think is exactly correct. It says, hey, it's also important to check the terms of sale or license agreement of the original copy of software in case any special conditions have been put in place by the copyright owner that might affect your ability or right under section 117 to make a backup copy. This is another area where people come into my videos and they say, hey, the terms of service, the EULA can never outrank the law, can never outrank the constitution. And that's true, right? The constitution is the highest law in the land. The statutes that the legislature passes are just below that. And then you get in the United States, you get into what states have passed and what state legislatures have passed. And then you have private agreements between something like a video game company and yourself. You can't override the law, but what you can do is you can ask someone else to give up the rights that they have under the law, right? And so if we go and we look at just an example and user license agreement, I pulled up Sega's because theirs went back to the PlayStation 3 era. I actually couldn't find anything online that went back to the PlayStation 2 era, but you'll, you'll have similar language to these kinds of things. The description of a license, some restrictions on the use of that license. You see the language that Sega includes. In accordance with and not intending to limit any of the provisions or protections set forth herein, duplication, copying, or any form of reproduction of the game software or related information, materials, or other content to any other server or location for the purposes of duplication, copying, or any other form of reproduction is expressly and explicitly prohibited. And you say, Rick, that's in direct violation of section 117 that says, hey, you can make a backup copy. But it's not. 117 gives you the right to make a backup copy. It says, legally, you have the right to make a backup copy. Sega says, that's fine. You have the legal right, but now we are setting a contractual right that says you won't do that. And that's not unusual. If you think about the various contracts that you enter into in life, you sign an employment agreement really anywhere outside of California in the United States, you're probably going to have some kind of non-competition provision as part of that employment agreement, certainly during the time that you are actually working for your employer. And that applies even in California where you say, hey, I'm going to take this job and I'm not going to work for the party that is directly across the street doing the exact same thing that we are doing. Or if you're not thinking about non-competition, just non-disclosure. 
you're going to be privy to certain information that we're going to give to you, and you agree not to disclose it to your neighbor or to someone else that might find it useful. If you didn't sign that contract and you otherwise got access to that information and you didn't have fiduciary obligations and other common law restrictions, then you would have the 100% legal right to do these things. You would have the legal right to go and work for the competition across the street. You would have the legal right to share this information with the journalist of your choosing. You would have the legal right to do any number of these various things. And you can probably think of a hundred examples and maybe include them in a comment to this video of things that you have the legal right to do that you give up. As a matter of fact, in order to have a valid contract, at least in the United States, you have to have an exchange of what we call consideration. They give you the job, you, uh, they give you the money, you do the job for them. You do X, they do Y. And one of the things that can be consideration is the waiver of a valid legal right. That's why the copyright office says, hey, make sure to read your license agreement to look for things like Sega says here, because while we say it's allowed, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily something that you can do without breaching your contract. Now, can they prove damages for that? Maybe not, but any contract like this, any end user license agreement is gonna have a section that basically says, hey, we can go ask the court to enjoin you from doing whatever it is that you are doing, from dumping ROMs, from playing things on an emulator, from whatever it might be. So yes, you can make a backup copy unless you can't under the contract. And most contracts are gonna say, no, you can't. Right. Proceeding from there, the other thing that people brought up a lot was, hey, what about the fact that some of this stuff might be obsolete? I can't play Super Smash Brothers anymore, at least not easily. I maybe can't play PlayStation 2 games, at least not easily. What protections do I have in respect of that particular concept? And unfortunately, the answer is very similar here. You have seen references to the fact that the Library of Congress has put forth certain exceptions to the use of obsolete software, in particular video games, in all honesty. But that applies specifically to this concept in the DMCA, and not the DMCA that we usually read when we're reading YouTube, but about circumvention of copyright protection systems, going around whatever security features that, in this case, a video game would have put into place. They say, you can't go around these things. No person shall circumvent a technological measure that effectively controls access to a work protected under this title, except that one of the regulations that is put forth is that video games in the form of computer programs embodied in physical or downloaded formats that have been lawfully acquired as complete games that do not require access to an external computer server for gameplay and that are no longer reasonably available in the commercial marketplace solely for the purpose of preservation of the game in a playable form by an eligible library, archives, or museum is exempt from this particular protection. But you see, it's libraries, archives, museums. These specific rules, for the most part, are based around being a library, an archive, or a museum. There are exceptions to that. We saw this, I believe it was in 2018, where you can see here in 12i, they gave an exception to things that require server pings. And if you had a requirement of a server ping and you're otherwise gonna run it on your personal local or personal computer or video game console, you can go around the need for that server ping, the verification that that server exists. As long as you can run it, then you're good to go. But that's not really the same as this obsolescence kind of concept. And I wanted to get that out of the way. It seems like a bit of a sidebar, but I think it's important for us to have these discussions on an even level, right? I would love it if video game archival, if video game backups, if the Copyright Act was more amenable to those concepts. I don't think that the Copyright Act, the exceptions, the DMCA, which was written in the late 90s, at all really contemplated the need to preserve 
what, in my opinion, is a human legacy. I love video games. I love the industry. And I agree with everyone that comes into my comments and says, hey, we should be able to do various of these things. We should be able to dump them, especially for an archival purpose. And it just becomes an open question about how your contracts work, how your end user license agreement works, various international jurisdictions. And the Copyright Act really isn't built to help you all that much, which leads us into the current question, right? Can Sony do anything about this with respect to Microsoft? Can Microsoft just on its own decide that this is too much heat or they just don't want to be in the business of allowing emulators on their system? The answer to that question really relates to a couple of places. The first is this whole notion of the developer mode. If you remember from the original article, this thing works because you can hit a button on your Xbox Series X or Series S and formerly the Xbox One when this was described and you can turn your box into developer mode. It says the Xbox One, which I believe has just been ported over for the purposes of this discussion onto the Series S and Series X, has two modes, retail mode and developer mode. In retail mode, the console is in the state that any customer or user of an Xbox One console would use. You can play games, unrun apps as a user. In developer mode, you can develop software for the console, but you cannot play retail games or run retail apps. So you put it in developer mode, you're already walking on a bit of thin ice just from this description of what Microsoft thinks this thing does by downloading a build of a particular version of an emulator and then playing retail games, retail apps on that emulator. Not retail games or retail apps as far as the Xbox store is concerned, of course, which is how people are doing this and and justifying it and how it's working right now. But the overall concept remains that developer mode was not built to do this. And Microsoft is going to reserve very broad rights to say, no, 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 that's not what this was intended for. If we actually go and we look at the program, we see the following. These terms are an agreement between Microsoft Corporation and you with respect to developer mode activation. They apply to the above. Purpose. You may activate your Xbox One retail console as a console to test development of applications for the Xbox One, including demonstrating your applications. That's what you can do it. That's what you can do with the developer program. That's what you can do with your Xbox One if you hit this button. That is the quote unquote purpose put forth in section one. Your use for the purpose stated above is limited to three Xbox One consoles at any one time for yourself. You agree to accept required Xbox One updates. You can give feedback and then it's Microsoft's. And then you may not distribute a digital storefront that competes with the Microsoft store. You can't use the developer program to develop a store that competes with the Microsoft store, which is an interesting kind of sidebar, not really a pertinent to this conversation, but it is a pertinent to the Epic versus Apple conversation where we see Microsoft throwing in in certain respects with Epic and not in other respects that they are and have been concerned about maintaining their quote unquote monopoly of Microsoft store access on the Xbox console in very much the same way that Apple does and very much the same way that Nintendo and PlayStation do. And you may not use in a way that Microsoft may later designate is prohibited without prior notice to you. Said another way, they don't have to give you notice. Microsoft can put up an email tomorrow or today that says, oh, wow, no, emulators aren't allowed. We don't want GameCube games. We don't want PlayStation games on our system. But Microsoft does have the ability to play those games right now on their Xbox. And it's 
pretty interesting to people that are interested in this archival of video games. So Microsoft could potentially say, nah, we're going we're gonna to accept this. We're going to allow these emulators and then we'll just have the fight with Nintendo and Sony if they want to bring it. Now, one other thing that you will see in this uh, modern vintage gamer video, if you watch it, is this notion that the emulator doesn't work to its maximal extent in developer mode because it can only access, I think it's like two gigabytes of RAM, something along those lines. Again, I'm not the technical guy here, but one of the things that they say can get around that is if you can use the emulator going through the retail mode of the Series S or Series X. They say they didn't do that. They didn't test that. They didn't show that on this video because of questions about the legality. Now, in my opinion, the developer mode itself already has open questions about not legality of statutes or infringement or things like that, but specifically contractual legality. Is this a breach of the concept that the developer mode was offered to you under? And if it isn't right now, will it be tomorrow if Microsoft says, whoa, no, none of this is allowed and you've agreed by just hitting the button for developer mode that we can prohibit any way that we see it being used without prior notice. But the retail mode is different. And so I I saw an article here on Ars Technica that talked about this retail mode, which they describe as a loophole. It says, modern gaming consoles have exploded with indie games and apps, but one category has always proven an exception, emulators. This week, however, Ars has learned of an apparent loophole in Microsoft's Xbox Store system being used to distribute high-performing emulators on the platform. Yesterday, we also wrote about how Xbox owners can use the system's built-in developer mode as a workaround to this. That's what we just talked about. That's what's been happening and shown on that modern vintage gamer video. But this new effort led by a third-party app developer going by the handle Turnip3 exploits an apparent hole in the Xbox app distribution system to let users download a retail version of RetroArch directly to the console's main interface without using developer mode and presumably getting access to more of that system memory. That method involves publishing a slight modification of the existing UWP version of RetroArch as a private app, which doesn't need to be reviewed by Microsoft, Turnip3 says. That's interesting. I don't know enough about Microsoft's process here, but it appears that he is using, Turnip3, is using some kind of whitelist private distribution protocol that you might see for quality assurance or testing. Certainly, I'm more familiar with that on the Apple side, the mobile side of things, where you get a certain right to publish things on an Apple piece of hardware without going officially through the store and through test flight or something else, give access to other people that have this kind of whitelist application. So it says, this version can then be downloaded directly by anyone whose email is placed on a whitelist And Turnip3 will be accepting applications for that whitelist through Friday. Ours will not be posting links to the Discord or whitelist application page because this seems hanky to ours. And I think they're probably right in believing that to be so. To distribute a retail version of the RetroArch to Xbox consoles in the first place, Turnip3 tells ours that it took some work just going through trial and error to figure out how the store's system works. Remember in this video, we talked about circumvention of technological measures. This starts to look a little bit like that even if it's more social or more analysis-based than hacking or actually interfering with the code on which the Xbox runs. Going through that effort, they say, gets around some problems inherent in the extant developer mode version of the emulator suite. While Turnip3 thinks Microsoft will eventually shut down this version of the app as well, he says he's not too worried about potential repercussions. I think they may ban my dev account, but I don't think that I've harmed them or threatened them in any real way. I doubt there will be any repercussions against the users as there have been sketchier hidden apps in the past and when they were removed, there were no repercussions imposed on the users. I have to say, I don't recommend taking the advice of anybody that goes by, I guess it's not Turnip, it's Tunip. 
three. And this really leans against legal advice to me. Uh, so I wouldn't take this under advisement if I were in your shoes and you were deciding whether or not to go and, and look at this as a potential avenue. But also past decision making by Microsoft or Sony or Nintendo doesn't really indicate future results, right? We see that especially with companies like Nintendo, where we saw them take down this Smash tournament when they've otherwise allowed it. They've actually sponsored that Smash tournament in the past. They've been affiliated with these various kinds of things. You don't know what you don't know about how the back rooms of these companies operate, what's going to be important to them, what they see as potentially damaging to their brand. So when you actually say, hey, I'm going to use a whitelist, I'm going to tweak this app a little bit because it's open source, and then I'm going to run it on a whitelist and privately distribute it through a retail channel, you start to look like you're really going above and beyond to break down the walls that they have on their own store. And until Epic wins its case or somebody else like them wins their case, the walled gardens are still permitted under United States law. And so this starts to look pretty bad. And I think ours made the right call by saying, hey, we're not going to distribute this. We're not going to publish how this can be done. And I think that Modern Vintage Gamer made the right call in saying, we're not going to talk about the retail option here. We're just going to talk about this developer mode option. But I think the developer mode option is probably already running against some difficulties with respect to emulation, with respect to ROMs, with respect to the Microsoft developer agreement in and of itself. And since Sony is in a position to very much not like how this looks, I think that there is a good chance that Microsoft slash Sony shuts this down in the near term. And so I wanted to talk about it before that happens, if it does happen, to say, look, I think they've got a lot of the law behind them, even if you or I or somebody else might not like it because it's good. It's better to have more games running on more modern devices than the opposite. But at the end of the day, all I can talk about is the state of the law right now. I can talk about angry Sony and a Sony that probably doesn't like the look of this thing and a world in which Sony might just call up Microsoft and say, hey, Microsoft, shut that down. This has been Virtual Legality for today. I hope you enjoyed this video. We love talking about the business and law of video games, music, movies, TV, pop culture in general. So if you like those conversations, if you like what you heard today, this is the third year of Virtual Legality officially with this video. Please like, subscribe, share, ring the bell, share these kinds of videos with other people that you think might be interested in them. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.